morning, everybody. May I my welcome to Jetty's? Particularly, this is your first time here with us. Um, maybe some of you have been already longing for the church lunch. Just just hold back yourselves a little bit. Uh, this this will happen, uh, and maybe some of you also are wondering quietly whose turn to wash up will finally make sense today. And those are those are very good things. You know, you know these you know these. Um, Two kinds of people sayings that they're out, they're out there. For example, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who wash up after the meal and those who wash up before the meal. And you can guess who, who the men are in, the, in, the, in, in that uh, equation. Um, there are many of those sayings. For example, uh, there are two kinds of people in this world, those who set up a single alarm and those who set multiple alarms in the morning, those who cut their toes straight or diagonal, those who fold the toilet paper up and down, and, and various. There are dog persons and there are cat persons. From the cat's perspective, things are, are very different, though. If, if we would have the cat version of the saying, cat would say, there are two kinds of people in this world, and I don't like them. <laughs> now, our psalm today made me reflect on this a little further, not on the cat saying, but on, 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 uh, on, the, on the two kinds of people sayings. I think when we, when we look at a psalm and we think about the psalm, we could say there are two kinds of people in this world, those who value things or, and, and those who value relationships. So, which one are you? What do you value, cherish most? Is, is it things or is it relationships? Now, our natural pull is towards cherishing things rather than relationships. Just consider children's birthday parties for a second. When you end up in children's birthday parties, you, you clearly see that that the sole focus is on the things, on the gifts that they receive, rather than the giver, be it a parent or, or, or grandparents or the weird uncle, it doesn't matter. It's all about things, all about gifts. And what a great contrast is a birthday party of someone who has lived more years than he or she has left. This person has learned not to cherish things, but rather the relationships, be it children, grandchildren, or friends. And that is someone who can echo King Solomon's saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Just hear it for a moment. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So what do you cherish most? What do you find pleasure in most? I wonder if the author of Psalm 102 is someone who is forced to remember his creator in the days of his youth. Just glance if the psalm is open before you at verse 23. He has broken my strength in mid-course. So the, the, the author has learned not to have pleasure in things, but rather he now craves for the relationships, only to find himself rejected like 
a lonely sparrow, verse 7. And so, firstly, in the day of his distress, as, as Jelly pointed out in the, in the introduction, the author pours out his heart before the Lord. He recognizes that ultimately, these are the relationships that matter the most, that he cherishes the most, verses 1 to 11. And then secondly, this acknowledgement comes from the understanding that the everlasting Lord reigns and regards the prayers of destitute. And that is from verses 12 to 22. And then thirdly, the Lord is committed to establishing the afflicted before him. From verses 23 to 28. And, and so, friends, my aim this morning is... For us to see that no matter what comes our way, no matter what comes our way, we can be confident that the Lord is committed to us. Even if we lose all our things, even if we lose all our relationships that some of you might have, we can be sure of one thing. I am a child of God and he is committed to saving me. But don't take me for my word. Uh, please see this for yourself from Psalm 102 as we make our way through it this morning. So firstly, pour out your heart to the Lord. We see a plea to the Lord in the day of distress in verses 1 to 11. There is nothing wrong in pouring out your heart uh, to the Lord. In your complaints, glance again at the heading of the psalm. This is a psalm, a prayer of one afflicted. When he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. We see it is an urgent plea of a believer, verse 1. Hear my prayer. Or verse 2, answer me speedily. And it is an urgent plea in the day of distress. Verse 2. The author is in distress, and there is a very good reason for it. The believer is suffering terribly. All the good pleasures of life are taken away from him. Just follow me through uh, some of the verses. He's experiencing emotional distress, verse 4. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. Um, he's experiencing loss of weight. Verses 4, I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. Experiences sleeplessness. Verse 6, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. He's experiencing rejection from verse 7. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. And finally, he experiences physical and social distress, verse 9. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Can you relate to some of it? Emotional distress, loss of weight, sleeplessness, rejection, social distress, physical distress. He might. And to be fair, I don't think he is going through, you know, uh, this thing called a man's flu. 
and that my world is collapsing at 37.2 degrees Celsius completely, I think I'm experiencing all the above distress symptoms at, at that temperature, nor I think he's in distress because someone disagreed with him on Twitter uh, about the personal pronoun subject or disliked him, uh, you know, his, that he posted about the gender agenda on Facebook. That, that's not really the level of distress. The threshold of pain for this guy is very, very high. He experiences severe physical, emotional, relational anxiety. He has learned one thing for sure. The pleasures, the things of this life are but a fleeting joy. They don't last. Instead, now he clings to the relationships with God. Verse 2, class, he seeks his face. Now, how is your relationships with God? Now, how much do you cherish the relationships with God? Are we not most aware of our need for God in the day of our distress? But notice how in the middle of the night, the psalmist doesn't even ask, Why God? Why is this all happening to me? Do you, know what, do you want to know why he does ask? Because he already knows the reason for his distress. He knows that because of verse 2, the Lord's face is hidden from him because, verse 10, of his in indignation and anger. Now, God is not necessarily angry with him individually. What we have here, quite possibly, is a suffering individual who is a part of the nation that has rejected God. Yes, we may be dealing here with the people of God in the Babylonian captivity. God had promised through his prophets to judge his people. And here it is. God's people cast away in a foreign land, facing a foreign people, who's speaking foreign language and forced to a hard labor, while God's face seems to be hidden. It doesn't look like his possessions, status, wealth, or even health matters anymore. All that matters to him is that the Lord hears him, that the Lord shines his face upon him, and he restores him back. <coughs> To the loving relationships with him. That's what matters most to the other. So what do you cherish most? Let me put it another way. What is it that, if taken away, would ruin your life completely? A lot of people think that they would be ruined if denied access to internet. Believe me or not. That's our feeling. But on a more serious note, let's, let's take this case study. What about health? What about our health? Would our life be completely ruined if our health would be taken away from us? Just consider, our culture worships health. 
It rejects the simple truth that man, in the words of the psalmist, withers away like a grass. The secular trinity in a form of fitness, food and pharmaceutical industries promise to extend our life and urges us to seek it at all costs. I just wonder if often Christians too succumb to the spirit of the age of seeking health at all costs. Now hear me, hear me out. I'm not saying we should not take care of our bodies and that we should neglect our health. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that our body should not be the most important thing in life. <coughs> our culture worships health and Christians, however, for whom body is the most important thing, will worship healing. Think about that. Again, I do not think it's entirely wrong to seek healing. No. All I'm saying is that if healing becomes the most important thing in your life, then we will be ruined if we don't receive it. You see, our psalmist holds the belief that he withers away like grass, inevitably. He is confident that death will inevitably catch up with him. But notice how he is not particularly seeking healing here. He is not afraid to be ruined by death if denied the healing. Why? Because he, know, he knows he's not going to be ruined by it. He knows, however, that he will be ruined if denied access to the Lord. That's why he's seeking his face. That's why he's calling upon God to restore him in his, into his relationships. Jesus in Matthew 10 28 encourages his disciples by saying, Do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Now, sickness, suffering, and death are the consequence of God's judgment on sin in this world. Let's be honest, we experience their unwelcoming presence in our lives all the time. Death, death is the last enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15. But death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And we are called to live out its destruction in our lives and deaths as Christians. Now, if you find some of these ideas a bit strange, you know, Christians not <coughs> particularly seeking healing at all costs and extending their health. I recommend you, I recommend you this short brochure you can borrow from me. It's by Mark Ashton, a, a British pastor in Cambridge, a, a large student church. And when he was diagnosed with a terminal gallbladder cancer, he wrote this short brochure, On My Way to Heaven. And there's some very, very helpful, sound, straight things that he talks about. So if you feel particularly sort of challenged by some of these um, ideas, I encourage you to, to borrow this from me. Just, it's one evening, and then bring it back next Sunday or so. Anyways, 
going through this experience as Christians in this world, the psalmist says we are encouraged to pour out our soul to God, to seek Him. Seek His face in the day of our distress. But how do we pour out our soul to the Lord? Secondly, we can do that knowing that He is the everlasting Lord. So the basis for the plea, the basis for pouring out your soul to the Lord is knowing that the Lord is, um, is everlasting. He is enthroned. Let's, let's let the children pass quickly in <laughs> so we can continue. Um, you can see that actually in verse 12, while children walk in, glance at verse 12. And the basis for the plea. But you, O Lord, you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. Well, it seems to be the logic of our psalmist. I experienced this terrible distress to the level of not being able to enjoy the things of this world. Nevertheless, I pour out my soul to the Lord. Why? Because he is the king. He reigns forever. He's called the everlasting Lord, the one to whom we turn first and foremost in our distress. Well, he definitely should be. His reign should really motivate us, calling well, to cling to him in all our troubles. Class at verse 17, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despair, uh, despise their prayer. Notice too the twofold purpose of his reign. Verse 16, he creates a heavenly people for his glory. The Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory. Now the psalmist could be referring in the first place to Jerusalem here, indeed. His lament is for the dear city that lies now in dust. But now has come the appointed time for the Lord to restore it. And indeed there is a, a moment in history when the Lord brings back his people from exile and he restores Jerusalem. Of course we, the New Testament readers, we are encouraged to read it more broadly. We are and have been for some time living in verse 16. The Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory even now. Listen to the author of Hebrews in, in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now, it does change our perspective, doesn't it? Before I poured out my soul to God because of my housing expenses. But now, now I pour out my soul to God because He creates an entirely new home in heaven for me. Now, which outpouring is more honoring and God-praising? It is the second one, isn't it? Because it is the flip side of God's purpose. So, he creates a heavenly home for his glory, but he also creates heavenly people 
for his praise and worship. Look at verse 18. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And then verse 21. That they may declare in Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the name of the Lord. And in Jerusalem is praise. When people gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Now, who are these people? Funny you should ask. We are. We are these people. Listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, if we just could always see how close God is to us, how personal he is, how caring he is for us, we would be more content in our calamities we would be more purer in our praise, more winsome in our worship of God who creates the heavenly home for us, for His glory, and heavenly people for His praise. Do you see that the Lord is totally committed to the afflicted? Totally committed. Now, it might be that you have this unspoken speech bubble still above your head. Not when, when is the church lunch, but, but the other bubble. You know, you, how do I get into this marvelous light that, you know, that the Bible says, talks about? How do I know if I am part of God's great building project, the heavenly home and the heavenly people, how can I be sure I will end up in the heavenly Jerusalem, gathered together with people from all nations to worship the Lord? How do I know? How can I be sure? Well, I deliberately left out the key missing piece in this puzzle uh, of our psalm. And no wonder, friends, that this key piece is Jesus. You can pour out your soul to the eternal Lord who is committed to saving you only in Jesus. Jesus is the real resolution for human distress. God is committed eventually to saving you in Jesus. And that's, that's what we see from verses 23 till the end of our psalm. Now, as you're looking at the, you know, at the closing verses of the psalm, you might be asking, where do we see Jesus in this psalm? It is tempting to pull Jesus out of the hat, you know, like, like a rabbit in a circus when preaching the Old Testament. But friends, I want to reassure you that this is not the case. Because the closing verses of our psalm are all about Jesus. Actually, verses 23 to 28 
is a dialogue between the Father and the Son. In verses 23 and 24, look at it. The incarnate Son is talking to the, the everlasting Father about his earthly destiny. Just look at verse 23 again. You have broken my strength in the mid-course, and you have shortened my days. Isn't that what Jesus would have prayed while on his way to Jerusalem? The place of his suffering, the place of his death, because of God's indignation and anger. But not on his sin. He was spotless. Jesus, the only man, is sinless. No, God's anger and indignation because of our sin. Do you see how this makes all of the psalm about the suffering of the Son incarnate, Jesus? The whole psalm is about Jesus. And how does the Father reassure his Son? In verses 25 onwards, the Father talks to the Son. Yes, that's Father talking to the Son. The author of Hebrews interprets this for us in in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, when he says, But of the Son, he says, You, O Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. Jesus, you laid the foundations of the, uh, of the earth. Now, why is the Father's reminder that Jesus himself is the everlasting Lord so important? Well, because that reassures us that God can pull it off in Jesus. In Jesus who suffered, died, was raised and sits at the right hand of God in glory. Because of Jesus' work, God hears the <coughs> prayers of afflicted. Why? Because we are in Jesus. God creates the heavenly home and the heavenly people only in Jesus. God is committed to his children, dwelling securely in Jesus. Look at verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. The offspring shall be established before you. In fact, that is the only thing that God is committed to, to the children of Jesus' servants. And nothing else. In the entire universe, nothing else. You might be again wondering, how come? But look at verse 26. The heavens and the earth and everything on it will pass away. It will perish. All the skyscrapers, all the church buildings, all the works of art, all the blue whales, all created order, it will perish. None of it will last. I could but notice um, that one church in Argenskant is raising money for rebuilding a church tower. And the slogan of the whole building project is, God is faithful. And yes, indeed, He is. God is faithful. But not in His commitment to the holy buildings. 
No, God is faithful in His commitment to His holy people. Nothing else. Now, friends, God, is it not that God most cherishes in this world, in this universe, His Son and Jesus' children? That's what God cherishes most. Those who trust in Him. So what should be our what, what should we cherish most if we know God? If we know God as our Lord and Savior, what would we what should we cherish most? And the answer is obvious, isn't it? It is relationships with God and the relationships with one another. And that is where we should confidently pour for um, our, our time in, our energy, our resources, because nothing else matters really. Well, apart from the people yet to be created for God's praise, right? And that is why the outbox of our confident trust in the Lord should be making Jesus known, excuse me, to people yet to be created. That's why we tell people about Jesus. Because nothing else we're going to last. Because ultimately, friends, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are in Jesus and those who are apart from Jesus. For those apart from Jesus, the day of distress will be turned into the day of judgment and eternal torment. Now, if you are someone who doesn't know Jesus as your Savior or your Lord, you are in trouble. You are in big trouble. So please, please receive the Son so you may live. Receive the Son. But for those in Jesus, the day of distress will be turned into the day of salvation and eternal joy. For those in Jesus, the end of the world will be more of a person rather than event. How come? In the blink of an eye, in the blink of an eye, we will see our risen Saviour. We will see our risen Lord staring at His wounded hands and feet on our behalf. We will joyfully praise and worship Him saying and singing the song of the Lamb that is recorded in Revelation 15. So let me close with these words, the song of the Lamb, that those who know Jesus will sing at that day. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen.